Well, good morning again, everyone. Thank you for worshiping the Lord through song, and now let's worship through the Word, shall we? If you haven't done so already, I want to invite you to take your listening outline from your worship guide, get a pen in hand, and open your Bibles in the New Testament, if you would, to the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And in just a moment, I want to share a message that's entitled, Leadership in a Healthy Church. Now, as we're preparing to hear the word here in the worship center. I want to say a warm welcome to everyone in our contemporary service as well as those who are joining us on TV and online. I'm really glad you're here this morning as well. And to those of you who are on TV and online, I know some of you are unable because of physical incapacity or some other reason to actually make your way here to our campus to worship with us. So I hope you'll continue to watch week by week. But to those of you who can, I want to encourage you to allow the TV or the online to be just the very first step. And I hope you'll actually come to in-person worship soon and join with hundreds and hundreds of others as we gather in Jesus' name week by week. Now, some of you may be wondering this morning, why are we looking at 1 Corinthians 3 and why are we looking at this particular topic. And it's mainly because it's part of our chapter day readings. And so we have begun reading through the epistle of 1 Corinthians. And if you're not part of the chapter a day journey yet, just pull out your phone right now. Text the word chapter to 22828. Just text the word chapter to 22828. You'll be able to sign up with your email address and join with literally hundreds of us as we're reading God's word, applying it to our lives, asking him to show us how to live in a way that pleases him every day. There's another reason why that I I guess we're teaching on this passage, and that is because I'm convinced that it it has some principles in it that will help us in all of life. It's not going to just relate to who we are as a church whenever we're gathered, but there are some transferable principles here that you can take to work to school, to your job, wherever you are during the week. And if you apply them, I think you're going to see that good outcomes will follow. You know, one of the things that's been true of our church for a long time is that when we've come to passages like these, we've not just skipped over them, but we've taught them. And I'm convinced it's helped us be a healthy church. So I hope you're going to find benefit here today. Now, let me see a show of hands about a couple of things. One, how many of you would agree with the general principle that leadership matters? Would you agree with that principle? I think all around the room, it's a commonly held thing, whether it's in sports or in business or in the military, in a nonprofit, in a church, the quality and character of the leadership matters. Second thing I want to ask you is about church. How many of you think it's more fun to get to come to a church where there are high levels of unity and harmony as opposed to high levels of conflict and disorder? Is it better to come to a more unified church? Well, yeah, I think it is. Now, there are some people that won't raise their hand. I think they're just looking for a fight to tell you the truth. 
They just want to find the church with the biggest conflict going on, and they sort of think it's sport to go to the business meeting, you know, and see everybody vent their spleen and throw out all their vitriol. If that's what you're looking for, you're not going to find it here because our church, by the Lord's grace, has been remarkably unified for a lot of years, and we've really attempted by his grace to build a strong and healthy leadership culture. Today's going to reinforce that, maybe strengthen that, deepen that. And if you're new to Ingleside, it'll give you some insight into who we are. There are several principles in chapters 3 and 4. Let's make a run at it. Here we go. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you're not yet ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving in only a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? So here's the first principle, write it in on your outline. It's simply this, that Paul says conflict, conflict in a church, conflict in almost any social situation is often the result of spiritual immaturity, of spiritual immaturity. Now here's a little bit of the background here. Paul had actually helped begin this church around 50 AD. It was the church in Corinth. In fact, I think we have a map that I want you to see that will show you where that is. It's down in the south of Greece, and in his second missionary journey, Paul had been to Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, and then he made his way over to Corinth. And he started the church there and as he preached the gospel. Now it's about three years later, and Paul's in Ephesus, and he's writing back to help this church grow to maturity. And, and he says to them, listen, some of the conflict I hear you're experiencing is because you've remained in spiritual infancy. You're not growing to maturity. In fact, he says, you're bringing some of the old habits and patterns and ways of thinking from the world before you were a Christ follower into the church. And so you're getting the same results in the church that you got in the world. He said, so let's sort of begin at baseline. Some of the things I'm going to teach you are going to be practical, strategic, put it into action kind of things. But it's all going to depend on the fact that you're growing more and more Christ-like in your character and growing to maturity in him. God, I just want to say this applies in families, this applies in marriages, this applies in workplaces, this applies in schools. If you'll give me a read of what the spiritual maturity level is, it's often associated with the conflict level. The greater the spiritual maturity, the lower the conflict. And when the conflict does occur, it can be resolved in a healthy way. But when there's low spiritual maturity, oftentimes the conflict leads to great disorder. That's the first principle today. Let's keep going. Look in verse 5. He says, what then is Apollos? Apollos was a leader or a teacher who had came after Paul founded the church. He says, what is Paul referring to himself? Servants 
through whom you believe. Circle that word servants on your outline. It's an important one. We'll see it again later. He says, servants through whom you believed as the Lord has signed to each. And then Paul's going to give this extended agricultural and construction metaphor that he will later explain with some really clear statements. I think you'll get the drift of it. So let me just read it in its entirety. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God, it was God who gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God. God gives the growth. And he who plants and he who waters are one. Their, their purpose, their mission is the same, he says. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers and you, the church, are God's field, God's building. Look at verse 10 then. He says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. He's talking about when he helped begin the church. And he says, now someone else is building on it. So let each one take care how he builds, for no one can lay a foundation and other than that which is laid, which is Christ. And if anyone builds, some will build with gold, silver, precious stones, others with wood, hay, straw. Each one's work will become manifest for the day, that is the day of judgment, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And if the work that anyone has built on the foundation he uh, survives, he'll receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And then in verse 16, he sort of delivers the conclusion. He says, do you, plural you, in the south, you all, are you ready? He says, do you all... Y'all, 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 yep, it's right there in Scripture. <laughs> Do y'all, you all, not know that you, plural, you all, do you all not know that you all are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you, plural, in you all. So Paul is speaking to the group. He is saying, do you not know that you all together are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you all. And then here it is, verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. And you, plural, you all are that temple. So what's the principle we're learning in this section? Write it in on your outline. It is that God takes the health, God takes the health of his church seriously, and so should we. Now, there is underlying this Paul's understanding of the church, and it just reminds me that the little um, hand motions and saying that I learned when I was a kid in Sunday school didn't quite get it right. Did you ever learn that saying where you put your hands together like this, and you say, this is the church, and then you do your two fingers up like that and say, this is the steeple. You open it up, and there are the people. Did you ever learn that along the way? Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open it up. There's the people. It's a great little saying. It's just wrong. <laughs> That's the problem with it. You say, what do you mean it's just wrong? Well, let me see if I can illustrate it this way. Let's say sometime this spring when thunderstorms often roll through, 
that one of them has embedded some really strong tornadoes, and God forbid that it would occur, but let's just say one week night that as the line of storms came through, a tornado spun up, and it took aim at 834 Wimby's Road, and this room in which we're sitting now was just flattened, completely gone. Nothing standing. The building disappears. I want to ask you something. Does that mean our church is gone? The answer is no. By the grace of the Lord, come Sunday, I feel like we would be out there in the parking lot. We would be assembled. We would sing. We would pray. We would preach. We would hear the word. Because guess what? The church is the people and not the building. And so you see, you see what the apostle Paul is saying then. To this church at Corinth that did not have a healthy leadership culture, they were not united. In fact, they were very divided, and some people were contributing to the division. He says, listen, you need to remember that it is the people of God who are the temple of God, and when you sow seeds of division that attempt to break the church apart, when you destroy the temple... God will destroy you. He takes it just that seriously. And we should too. Instead, we should do what has really been the case at Ingleside for a lot of years. We should love one another, honor one another, prefer one another, defer to one another, resolve conflict in a way that maintains the unity of the body. We ought to prize and protect the unity of our church family. Why? Because God takes the health of the church seriously, and so should we. So the first thing Paul says is, look now, spiritual maturity is where it begins. God honors and values the health of his church. And then look at verse 18, the end part of chapter 3. He says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Look at verse 19. Don't miss it. Don't run right past it. It says, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. He says, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise and they're futile. So let no one boast in men. He says, look. In the Lord, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. He's saying, look, all these teachers, they are for you. They belong to you. Or the world or life or death or the present or the future, those are all yours in Christ because God is sovereign over them all. All are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Now, what is Paul saying here? Write it in. He's saying that we need the wisdom of God not the wisdom of the world, to be a healthy church. Now, it doesn't mean that there's not some things that we can't learn from other disciplines and other learners, no. But what it does mean is that the Scripture 
that God has given us with the wisdom of God, rooted in the gospel, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that it's God's wisdom we need in order to be a healthy church, not the wisdom that we might import from the world. So he lays out these three foundational principles, and then he gives us like three or four more, and let's look at them as we wrap up today in chapter 4. He says, this is how then one should regard us. You see, one of the issues was leadership and how leaders ought to be seen and how leaders ought to act and how leaders ought to speak. So now that he's illustrated it with that extended metaphor, then the Apostle Paul says it plainly. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. And then he says, but with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself or I'm not aware of anything against myself. But that doesn't mean I'm acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, don't pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes. We'll bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and we'll disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So what's Paul teaching us here? He's teaching us that in the church, leaders are servants. Write it in. Leaders are servants. It's there in verse 1. It was earlier in chapter 3. It means leaders come to their task, not with a sense of entitlement or privilege, but with a sense of following in the footsteps of Jesus to serve others in Jesus' name. But particularly here, the Apostle Paul is underscoring that leaders are servants of Christ, and they care more about what he thinks and his judgment and his approval than they do about the judgment or approval of anyone else. Look, look right up here. Every Christian eventually has to decide whose applause means the most to you, whose approval means the most to you. Is it the people you go to school with? Is it the people you work with? Is, is it the influencers in the culture? Is it your extended family? Whose applause do you want most? And Paul says here that in the church, those who follow Jesus, and especially the leaders, they ought to care more about Jesus' applause, Jesus' approval, than they ought to care about the approval of any other. Boy, when you get to that place, it'll set you free. Because, oh yes, you ought to care about what others think, but what they think pales in comparison to what the Lord thinks, and it's the Lord Jesus that we ought to be intent on pleasing. Boy, it's a great principle. The fifth principle was also in this first part of chapter 4, and that is leaders are stewards. Do you know that word? Stewards, it's a word that means a manager, a superintendent, a person who has received a delegated task, and along with the task, the authority and responsibility to carry out the task. A, a steward is always a second chair leader. A steward is not the owner of the farm or the owner of the house, but instead the owner 
employs the steward in order to lead the farm or to do the work or manage the affairs of the house. And so when Paul says, in the church, leaders are stewards, what he's saying is, listen, everybody who leads in the church is not the owner. The owner of the church is God himself. And Jesus, the Son of God, is head of the church. But he has delegated to us some authority and responsibility within the body. And we will ultimately be accountable to him. Are you tracking with me? That The Bible says leaders are not only servants, but leaders are stewards. This truth came to mind when I was reading something the other day, and it, it said this. It says, all pastors are interim pastors. And when I read that, it just made me smile. I thought, that's exactly right. What does that mean? It means the church was here before we got here, and the church will be here after we're gone. We're all just interim pastors. Isn't that right? Now, granted, some interims are longer than others. Some interims are healthier than others. But the truth is, we're just all interim pastors. And I was sitting thinking about that, and I thought, that's true of everybody in the church. Some of you are Sunday school class teachers. Guess what you really are? You are interim Sunday school class teachers. Somebody was teaching it before you got there. Somebody will be teaching it when you're gone. You're just there for a little while. Some of you sing in a choir. I'm really glad you do. I hope more of you do. But all these choir members up here, they're just interim choir members. I mean, somebody was singing before they got here. Somebody will singing, be singing after they're gone. They're just here for a little while. Some of you are serving in other various roles in our church. And I'm really, really glad you do. I'm thankful for that. But you're just an interim preschool worker. Because somebody was taking care of those kids before you got here. Somebody will be taking care of them after you're gone. You're just an interim. You're just a steward. Now, why was Paul making this point? Because there were some people at Corinth who were walking around with their shoulders back, their chest puffed out. They were sort of thinking they were high and mighty. And he was saying, oh, no. Oh, no. God's the owner. We're just stewards. So if you see somebody walking around here and they're sort of puffed up and proud, you just sort of look at them and say, you know, you're just an interim. <laughs> and all of a sudden, poof, puncture. Air comes out of the balloon. You see, Paul, what Paul was really uh, battling here was spiritual pride. Now, there's a complimentary truth. It's in John chapter 10. I just have to mention it. Where Jesus said, he's the good shepherd. A good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And he contrasts the good shepherd with a hireling. And what does a hireling do? H-I-R-E-L-I-N-G. He says a hireling, he doesn't care anything about the sheep. He's just there for a paycheck. So when trouble shows up, the hireling runs away. So do this. Put the owner on one end. Put the hireling on the other end. We're not the owner, but neither should we be mere hirelings. Instead, in the sweet spot is responsible, accountable stewardship, all for the glory of God. Man, that applies not only at church, but in so many other areas of our lives. Well, look, verse 6, it continues. Paul says, 
So I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written and that none of you, here it is, none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. In other words, he's saying, I'm applying these truths to us, but they apply to us all. Verse 7, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, he's still combating pride here. He's saying, everything you are and everything you have is really a gift from God. It's not your own doing, so don't be proud about it. And then there is some sanctified sarcasm in the next paragraph here in Scripture. Paul says, already, you have all you want. That's what they were saying. Already, you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. Sarcasm is dripping. He says, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles as, last of all, like men sentenced to death. Because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. And then Paul's comparing his own ministry to that of some of these so-called leaders in Corinth. He says, we're fooled for Christ's sake, but you, you're wise in Christ, right? We are weak, but you're strong, right? You're strong. You are held in honor, right? But we in disrepute. He says, to the present hour, we hunger, we thirst. We're poorly dressed, buffeted, homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Y'all write it in. What Paul is teaching us is that leaders are to have humility. Humility. And it's accompanying gratitude. Well, let's finish up then. He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children... For though you have countless guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so Paul says to them, I urge you then, be imitators of me. And so write it in the seventh principle is leaders are always spiritual examples for good or for ill. And Paul said to these Corinthian believers, look. Can't you see through the pretense of some? Instead, be imitators, he says, of me as I follow Christ. And then the last paragraph. He says, that's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. Now watch this. The church in Corinth is divided. There's all this uh, competition between leaders, criticism of the Apostle Paul. And he says, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come. I'll come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. And then he puts a point on it. He says, what do you wish? Shall I come with a rod? It means, shall I come to bring discipline? Or will I be able to come with love and in a spirit of gentleness? The last truth in our passage today is that leaders are spiritual authorities. 
And those spiritual authorities sometimes need to bring wise, loving, for the good of the group, discipline, discipline that is necessary to the health of the body. Now, as you're uh, putting your outline away, let me, let me just see if I can illustrate that last point. Can you tell me what happens in a school classroom when there's not any discipline? Can anybody tell me what happens in a classroom? In, in, in every service today, I've heard one word. The word is chaos. If you've ever been in the school classroom where there is a lack of discipline, you know that things deteriorate pretty quickly. And there is chaos. And when chaos goes up, what happens to learning? It goes down. And so watch this. A teacher's training may have been in any one of a number of different disciplines. Maybe they were trained in math. Maybe they were trained in science. Maybe they were trained in history or geography or reading or some other discipline. But it really doesn't matter what discipline the teacher was trained in. If that teacher is unable, unwilling, or doesn't receive the necessary support to bring discipline to her classroom or his classroom, not much learning will occur there. Isn't that right? Isn't discipline necessary in a school classroom? I, I see nods all over the room. I think you would agree. When I talk to the many teachers who are at Ingleside, some say to me, oh, I yearn for the day when the administrators, the parents, the community at large were supportive of discipline in a way that they once were so that things would be better in our schools. I hear that with some regularity. It's built on this principle that a teacher has to have authority to discipline. Now, I want to hasten to say, is it possible for a bad teacher to abuse their authority? What's the answer to that? Well, the answer is, of course it is. But do you eliminate the teacher's authority to do discipline simply because some abuse it? Absolutely not. Okay, so that's one example. Let's, let's choose another. Now it's a sports team. We're almost to March Madness. Let's say it's a basketball team. Let's say a coach has got a player and he can fill it up. Man, he can score to beat the band. But you know, his attitude stinks. It's sort of self-centered. He doesn't follow some of the team rules. And he's just consistently late to practices. Well, guess what that coach is eventually going to have to do? He's eventually going to say, son, you're a good shot, but you're going to get to ride the pine. Do you all know that expression? Ride the pine means you're going to get to sit on the bench. It means you're not going to have any PT. You're not going to have any playing time until you decide you want to be a part of the team and get with the program and follow the rules and honor your teammates and honor authority. But boy, when, when he, when he um, insists on discipline, guess what happens if that kid responds positively? Boy, that team moves to levels it had never moved to before. Okay? So we're all agreed. Discipline is required in a school classroom. Discipline is required on a sports team. 
Now let me ask the question. Is discipline required in a church? And the answer is yes. So he said, well, I never heard that before. But don't you see, Paul's teaching the principle. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 5, we see it applied. You say, well, how would it ever be true here? Well, let's just say we got a, a Sunday school or Bible study teacher, and they say, you know, I've been growing and learning and reading and so much, and all. I, I, I love the Bible. I still love the Bible. But guess what? I love the Quran now too, and I love the Upanishads, and I love the Vegas, and I love the Pearl of Great Price, and I love this scripture. And I've just decided in our class, in our group, we're just going to do the Bible one week and one of those one week and another one another week, and that's what we're going to do. It's going to be great. Y'all agree with that? Well, wouldn't you expect a leader to come alongside that teacher and say, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute now. We have agreed together that the Bible is God's word. That's what we'll teach. Glad you've learned about all these other things, but we're going to need you to teach the Bible with a glad heart and the right spirit, or maybe there's not going to be the place for you to teach. Wouldn't you expect that to occur? I think it would have to happen. So now watch this. In your school, in your business, in your nine to five, Monday to Friday life, and Sundays at church, leadership implies authority, and authority implies discipline, always for the good of the group. And never to be punitive, but to be redemptive and restorative. Oh man, aren't you glad? That God gives us principles to apply. And when we apply them with grace and with wisdom, with mercy and with courage, oh man, the church flourishes, leadership is in place, and the church is healthy for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, thanks so much today for all you're teaching us. I want to thank you for the years and years of developing a healthy leadership culture. Not, not perfect, but healthy. Lord, I thank you for the health and unity of our church. I pray you'd keep us there in the days ahead. I pray, oh Lord, that um, some of these principles that have application in marriage and family and school and business, you'd show us how to apply them in ways that would be for our good and for your glory. And Lord, I thank you, thank you that you are faithful to us all along the journey. We want to be faithful to you. Lord, we love you and offer this prayer to you in Jesus' name. Amen.